Coming up on today's show, this weekend marks one year since the Nova Scotia massacre that killed 22 people. Bad news from government officials saying the threat of election interference is likely higher now. We'll get more on that. And the government making some moves to try and block piracy websites in Canada. It's a slippery slope. We'll talk about it. The Nova Scotia massacre that took place one year ago this weekend. Sarah Ritchie is a reporter with Global News in Halifax. She joins us now. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning, Sam. Well, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, you were you you were working that day, right? Just, just tell us about that day one year ago. Yeah, I, I wasn't supposed to be working, um, but I'm the anchor for the Global News at Six show here in Halifax. And when I got up in the morning and I started to see tweets from the RCMP saying that there was a shooter on the loose, and we had no idea where he was or what had happened at that point, I just I just knew I needed to come in. So my boss and I met here at the station. Um, it was, you know, a really unusual day. Uh, we had no idea through the day what was going on. We got a live update that evening at 6 o'clock in our 6 o'clock newscast from the RCMP. And at that time, they said in excess of 10 people had been killed. It mm-hmm. wasn't until days later that we learned it was 22. Um, and, and, you know, Sarah, and this carried on. For hours, right? I mean, this did not resolve until the next day, really. Yeah, so the Sunday was the day that it resolved, the 19th, but it had actually begun the night before on Saturday with a killing spree in the very small community of Portapix. So 13 people were killed there. And then by the end of it all, by the time the police killed the gunman, uh, he was nearly 100 kilometers away from Portapix. He had killed 22 people. He had set five buildings on fire. It was just an unbelievably horrific and hard to understand series of events. And I remember, you know, in the days immediately following just how stricken that community was, that whole region, really, because like you say, it it spread out over a couple of different locations. What's it like for the year since? Um, what's, What's the community been going through for the past year? You know, I think it's been so difficult to deal with everything that happened in the spring in Nova Scotia last year because of this pandemic, right? We weren't able to gather. We couldn't have those public outpourings of grief, the vigils, the memorials, the funerals, even. Families couldn't hold proper funerals um, because of COVID restrictions. That's been so hard for people. And, you know, even a year later, um, the memorial services that are being planned for this weekend are they're small and they're COVID safe and they're being managed in a very careful way, of course, which is a good thing. But it does mean that the community, once again, isn't able to sort of gather together to support one another. I had people say to me, you know, when something like this happens in a small town, you you go to your neighbor's house with a casserole dish or with something um, and you give them a hug and you just couldn't do that. So it's been a really difficult year. In terms of the investigation, there's been an intense investigation into just how this all came about. Um, Where does that stand? What have we learned about why this all took place? Yeah, so we've been investigating as as a journalism team here at Global News in Halifax. We've been investigating what happened, the origins of this, how it how it occurred, what red flags and warning signs were missed. But in terms of the official police investigation, I've got to say it's been um, it's been more than 10 months since we've heard from the RCMP. So in the weeks following the shootings, they gave a series of press briefings and updates to the public. They committed to regular and timely updates to the public on June the 4th, and that was the last time we've heard from them. Um, they've released a couple of statements or news releases since then, but they haven't answered questions. They haven't given interviews. 
And, you know, the standard line that we've heard from them ever since November has been the most appropriate and unbiased opportunity for us to talk about what happened is at the upcoming public inquiry. And so that inquiry mm-hmm. is underway. Um, it hasn't begun hearings yet. We don't know when those will start. We know that it has to give final recommendations by November 2022. So that's another you know, long process for families who still have questions about how all of this happened. Yeah, most definitely. Um, now, you've been working hard on a series, um, 13 hours, uh, inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, and it will start premiering uh, on CHED uh, coming up early, early next month. Just tell us, um, it's it's a lengthy investigative series. What can people expect to hear and learn as as they listen to that? Yeah, so the format of the series is that we wanted to try to break down that really difficult to understand 13-hour time period. And so the format is that each episode follows one hour of the killing spree as closely as we can with everything that we know. Um, But one of the most important things for us, you know, because we weren't able to have those public memorials and um, because this all happened during COVID-19, where our focus, I think, as a nation was pulled elsewhere, one of the really important things to my team was to give space to the families of the victims, to memorialize them, to talk about the lives they lived and the people they loved, and not just learn about the way that they died. And so we give space for families, if they wish, to to share those memories, to share those important things about their loved ones. So you learn about each of the 22 people as you listen to the series. Um, You learn about some of the red flags, the warning signs, the things that police knew or ought to have known about the gunmen. And we ask some pretty serious questions, some pretty difficult questions about what needs to change to prevent something like this from happening again. Yeah, and I think that's a question that a lot of people have, right, is just how can something like this happen? and especially when we, as we learned more and more about the gunmen involved in this, Sarah, um, we came to learn that there were some pretty clear indicators that something was very, very wrong and the potential for violence was quite high, right? I mean, there were indicators before this ever happened. Yeah, there were. And and this is one of the things that's been very troubling is that, you know, as far back as 2001, he was convicted of assaulting and pleaded guilty to assaulting a 15-year-old boy in a random attack that put that victim into the hospital. Um, In 2010, there was a warning to police from someone who knew him who said, you know, I think something's wrong here, and I know this person has guns. In 2011, there was another warning. So, And in 2013, a neighbor actually reported to police that he was violent toward his intimate partner, his common-law partner at the time, and that he had illegal weapons. We don't know what police did with that information. They say they don't have a record of that final report from the neighbor. They said that they investigated in, uh, I I believe I said 2010, but it was actually 2011. They investigated in 2011 that report of his illegal weapons. But the thing is that, you know, he never had a license to own any weapons in this country. We know now that he smuggled weapons from the United States. So it raises a whole host of questions about what investigations were done, what kind of follow-up there was, why he was able to cross the border with these illicit items, you know, how how strict the border controls are. Um, there are a lot of questions that need to be asked about that. And I think, you know, it's been it's been difficult to get answers to those things. I think there's some hope that this public inquiry will be a forum for answers for this kind of thing. Yeah, Sarah, and I know it's a it's a story that's been closely watched by um by so many people. And uh, thanks for your great reporting on it. It's uh, it, it's good stuff. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks so much, Shay. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Thanks, Sarah. The upcoming federal election, which we know is on the way, uh, we're not 100% sure when it's going to happen, but uh, everybody seems to think it's going to happen this year. We'll see an election at some point in 2021. Uh, nothing's been called, of course, but uh, that's the prediction. Uh, and, it, you know, whenever we talk about elections nowadays, we have to talk about the way that they are being affected by largely foreign actors um, and, you know, the foreign interference in our election process. Now, the reporting that's being done here by the president of the Queen's Privy Council uh, is being released and talked about this week. Dominic LeBlanc is the person in charge of that. And he says, quote, Canadians should assume the threat of foreign interference likely will be higher in the next general election than it was in 2019. He says, I think we should just assume that the threat environment and the threat context has increased since our last election. So what does that mean and how can we safeguard against this? Is there anything we are doing, anything we can do to try and put the brakes on this outside interference? So uh, David Levine joins us now. Uh, He is uh, Elections Integrity Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. David, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so when we take a look at this, I don't think anybody is under the illusion that it was going to stop, but to hear that the um, outside interference in our election process is actually worse now than it was last time around, uh, I mean, obviously that's concerning, it's troubling, we can't seem to put the brakes on this. Yeah, I think you're right, Shay, but I don't think that statement coming from uh, LeBlanc is any surprise. Um, and, And just to step back for a second... When um, you know, Mr. LeBlanc is talking about the threat of foreign interference, we ought to clarify right, what that means. Right? Foreign governments or foreign actors often try and influence the politics and policies of other countries. To, you know, they often are trying to advocate for or trying to shape other countries' foreign policies. Mm-hmm. But when such activities are intended to directly or indirectly affect an election, right, in, in, including candidates, political parties, voters of their preferences, Right, that's often characterized as election influence, and those are right. That's done to manipulate voter preferences and turnout. Right, but if a foreign government is part of those election influence efforts, attempts or takes actions to target the technical aspects of an election, right. such as the casting and counting of ballots or the reporting of results, that's election interference. And I think you know, it, you know, I don't want to put words in, in Mr. LeBlanc's mouth, but but but. I think he in particular was speaking toward, right, the foreign influence piece, because I think, you know, as the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity wrote in its 2020 National Cyber Threat Assessment, right, online foreign influence activities are a new normal, and adversaries are seeking to influence domestic events as well as impact international discourse related to current events. And in addition to that, right, while relative to some countries, Canadians may be lower priority 
targets for online foreign influence activity. Canada's media ecosystem is closely intertwined with that of the United States yes. and other allies, and that means when their populations are targeted, Canadians could become exposed to online influence as a type of collateral damage, right? And, and, and certainly I think about the U.S. 2020 presidential election. And so, you know, I think that statement, you know, it, it, doesn't, come, it doesn't come as a surprise, um, not only because of what sort of Canada has experienced, right, certainly with regards to 2019, but also what we're seeing, right, throughout the world more broadly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I don't know if, if we're necessarily a prime focus of these foreign agents. I would doubt that we aren't. Um, but you, you make a couple of interesting points, and I want to sort of pull them apart a little bit if we can. Um, there are different ways of affecting the outcome of an election. Let's start with what is more common, and, and uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time on social media to see it. Um, Influencing the electorate. Um, that, is, that, is, that is a campaign that we know started overseas um, and has been continuing ever since. What is the point? How do they do it? What is the method they use? Um, and what is the ultimate goal for them? Sure. That's, a, that's an excellent question, Shane. I, I think one of the things that's worth noting is that, you know, because of COVID, right, we've seen yeah. that more aspects of elections and political campaigns have moved online, right, and there are more opportunities for maligned foreign actors right, to spread disinformation and mislead democracies about things like how, when, and where to vote. And ultimately, you know, there are a number of reasons for this, but one of the biggest is to try and undermine confidence, right, in elections and democracy more broadly. And we know that in Canada, nearly 70% of Canadian Internet users access a social media site almost every day. 65% report having seen fake news on social media. 43% report having seen fake news on mainstream media. And of those reporting fake news... 90% say they've fell for it at least once. And frankly, this isn't an issue unique to Canada. Um, it's the kind of thing that we've seen across the globe. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things that's, that's really in, in, important about this um, is that, you know, what we see is we see foreign adversaries um, going on to social media, right, in, in many cases, right, either being able to amplify information, right, from domestic sources that may not be accurate, or being able to use d different techniques, right, to be able to push information that they think are likely to pit folks against yeah. one another um, and cause tremendous division. And, and that was one of the things that was so effective, frankly, in, 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 in Russia's efforts in the 2016 election. And frankly, there was success to some extent with regards to that, with regards to the U.S. 2020 presidential election as well. So, David, explain to me, what, how does that benefit Russia? Uh, we, let's just say Russia is the one doing the majority of this, okay, let's, for, for discussion purposes. What, 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 is, what is the benefit to them? Is it just saying, hey, look at the West, they're a disaster? Is that, is that all it is? I mean, they're not installing different governments. No, I, so that's a, a good question, and I think a couple points are worth noting, right? Number one... Um, you know, Russia, the way they tend to interfere in elections, whether it's with what they did with, in France, right, efforts they've tried in previous elections in Netherlands, the United States, or Germany, right, is, is their interference, their way of going about interfering either in infrastructure or social media campaigns, right, is a crude but cheap way of, of number one, right, trying to take these countries down a peg. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because I think, you know, Russia is not where it once was on the world stage. It, it does not uh, carry the same weight as, 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 as Russia, um, I mean, excuse me, as China or the United States or other countries. And, and this is a way for them to continue in a, in a very cheap way to sort of assert themselves and make sure that they're known on the world stage. The second thing that I think is really important is that this is a really critical moment for democracy. 
right? And, yeah. and I think there are countries, authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, and Iran, that think there's an existential threat to them, right? From the mere existence of democracy, they want to be able to put forward an alternative vision, um, right, uh, for, for governance here, right, in the global community. Um, and, and so democracies that are successful are a direct challenge to that. So being able to demonstrate or amplify democracy's vulnerabilities can be a way for them to put forth their alternative visions for governance more globally. Uh, David, can I get you to hang on for just a minute here? We'll take a quick break and come back and talk about, you know, the actual election system and how secure that is. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we'll put you on hold for just a second. David Levine, we're talking to right now, who is the Elections Integrity Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. We'll have more on this discussion right after this. We're chatting with David Levine, the Elections Integrity Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. David, um, we broke down pretty uh, thoroughly, I think, what's going on in terms of influencing the electorate. The bigger concern, and, I, and some of our listeners are weighing in here, what about the actual system itself? Um, how secure yeah. is that? I mean, we, we, we heard reports largely fake uh, about votes being changed and all sorts of things like that in the United States. Um, how secure is the actual electoral system in our country? Is it vulnerable to these sorts of efforts? Sure, that's a great question, Shay. And, and let me just back up and, and, and say that the Alliance for Securing Democracy partnered with Microsoft, right, and the government of Canada um, to... Um, to basically launch the Community for Countering Election Interference. And that was a multi-stakeholder forum dedicated to raising global awareness of the threat cyber attacks posed to elections and other democratic institutions and for providing strategies for defending against the threat. And that emerged out of the government of France's Paris call for trust and security in cyberspace, right? And so basically the three of us, Microsoft, ASD, and Canada, wanted to come up with ways to try and prevent interference in electoral processes. And the reason that ASD and Microsoft reached out to the government of Canada was because it had recent experience dealing with the challenges of foreign interference in the run-up to its 2019 election. And frankly, it's widely recognized as the standard bearer for public sector response to foreign interference in elections, right? And there are a couple of reasons for that, right? Number one, in Canadian federal elections, both voting and vote counting are paper-based. Right? And so that reduces the prospect of foreign interference in the electoral process itself. And number two, right, Canada has taken a number of steps to protect the functioning okay. of elections, many of them in the run-up to the, the 2019 election. So um, we have know, put some safeguards in place then. What was that? We have put some safeguards in place then. You, you have. I mean, I think one of the biggest ones was passing the Elections Modernization Act. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that was really important was that made it more difficult, right, for foreign actors right. to run political advertisements without disclosing their identity. It made it provide a new offense to computer hacking, right? You've also established a security and intelligence threats to election task force to integrate analysis from different government agencies monitoring online threats to the integrity of an election. And Canada also has a critical election incident pub uh, public protocol, right? But frankly, you know, drives government decision-making on communicating with the public on threats to the election, right, during sort of the, sure. the, the, the writ period. And that is also really important, and I think is a model, because it largely removes party politics from the question of foreign interference. Right. So the vulnerability remains, then, um, the influence over people on social media. Basically, that's what we're looking at. 
Basically, and I'll add, you know, there are a couple things here and there. You know, one example, which I think is important and worth noting, is that, you know, there are pieces of the election infrastructure that, that can be connected to the Internet. So one example in, in Canada, right, is, is with regards to online registration. Um, but again, even with online registration, right, we saw that the 2016 U.S. election, we saw that Russian-affiliated actors trying to hack, right, online voter registration databases. But we know that there are ways... Right to have backups in place to, to help mitigate those risks, um, and so I think to your point, the, the the biggest threat is with regards to foreign influence. Okay, David, thank you so much for the insight this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Right now, though, we're going to shift gears and talk about uh, a couple of decisions that came out from the CRTC. Well, one's a decision and one's a proposal. We should be accurate here. Uh, They're taking a look at a couple of different things. And one of them, the first one we'll talk about, deals with the never-ending and uh, pretty daunting task of trying to regulate the Internet. The federal government looking at some changes. Uh, What they want to do is target websites where people essentially steal television shows and movies, piracy websites, you know what they are. Uh, Laura Tribe joins us now, and Laura is the executive director of the internet advocacy group Open Media. So, Laura, do I have that right? Essentially, they're trying to make sure that content creators are getting paid for their work, something that they've talked about before uh, and failed miserably on, right? (laughs) Uh, I think there's there's been a lot of talk about it, and I think that's definitely what uh, is kind of the underlying motivation for what is being floated uh, by the government in this case. But I think that the ramifications for this could be a lot wider, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's the concern. Basically, what they're doing is going to Internet service providers and saying, we want you to block specific websites. That's the mechanism they've chosen to propose in this instance? Well, I think there's a few different things on the table. Uh, this is actually a proposal that we have seen already in the past, and it's really been pushed forward by Bell Canada. Uh, specifically, and they have been looking for the powers to block websites that they believe are supporting illegal content sharing. Uh, And I think just to make it really clear, we are not in support of illegal content sharing, but I think unfortunately the proposals uh, largely tend to circumvent a lot of the due process that would make sure that legal content is not also being blocked. And so giving a company like Bell the ability to block anything they think might be piracy is very different from asking them to block things that have been proven in a court to be piracy. And I think that's where the concerns come in for what that means for our ability to access content on the internet. Interesting. Okay. Um, How many people are doing, I mean, I didn't even know these pirate sites still existed. Is this something that's happening a lot? It's a lot less common than it used to be. Uh, Given the amount of content that is available through online streaming platforms, you know, that content is now able to be accessed online. And so we have seen over the years those numbers coming down uh, significantly. And we do have already a regime through our Copyright Act that knows what to do with that. They know how to handle it. Uh, When content is identified that has been shared that they believe is um, not legal content, there are notifications that go through ISPs to the customers or the internet users that let them know um, there are mechanisms to take those users to court should the case arise. Uh, so it's not this is like this is a problem that's been ignored. Uh, this is really looking to take far more dramatic and overreaching steps, I would say, to try and address this. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's part of the concern because, like, like we said, this isn't the first time this has been discussed in trying to get a handle on this situation. Uh, the arguments against it before were, you know, net neutrality and basic censorship. Are those arguments being made once again? 
hundred percent. They are very similar. So when this proposal was first floated, it was introduced at the CRTC, our federal regulator, and uh, in a very unprecedented amount of engagement, there were over 150,000 submissions put into the CRTC about this proposal because people feel very strongly about it. And network neutrality or net neutrality is really about making sure that ISPs, your service providers, have to treat all content neutrally. They have to treat it all the same. They don't get to pick and choose what they think is good enough. And this really flies in the face of that principle that's so important to the open internet. Yeah, it, it, it's in direct defiance to that, obviously. Um, now, the CRTC, when they talked about this before, their decision to not do anything, basically they came down and said, well, it's not our jurisdiction, so we can't do anything. So why is it different this time? In this case, it's actually a proposal being put forward by the government. So the Minister of Canadian Heritage has opened a consultation to ask people what they think. And they have put forward kind of a, a discussion paper to start the conversation, and they're asking for submissions by the end of May. Uh, to let them know what people think and what they should do. So the difference is that while the CRTC said they don't have the authority to implement such a regime, the government does. And I think the other difference is that instead of this being pushed forward by a very uh, clear private interest like Bell, in this case, it's actually being put forward by the government itself. So the government is asking, can we have the powers to do this? And what do you think if we move forward with it? And so I think there's a far higher probability that it's in the right jurisdiction for those uh, powers to be used and it to be implemented. So, as you said, there are mechanisms in place to sort of notify. Is there, are, is there, is there a way that this can be done um, that everybody would say, okay, this is an acceptable approach to handling um, these piracy sites? I think it is very unlikely. Yeah. Um, the, because of how much of the liability ends up getting put on ISPs to do this, they are inherently inclined to overblock content because they don't want to be held responsible for that. If you look at ISPs who just provide internet, uh, there is no interest for them to take this on. There is no ISP that is keen to take on the responsibility of filtering and blocking websites. It's expensive, it's difficult, and they know they're going to get some of it wrong. Where you really see people pushing for it is just for those that are vertically integrated or have interest in content as well. So it really is companies like Bell who also create content where one interest is kind of influencing the other. But it's really hard to get it right. And that's why we have the copyright regime that we do, which doesn't block content off the bat, but notifies users because there is such chance of misidentifying the user or blocking their own content, given that free expression is such a a charter right in Canada, we actually yeah. don't want to have any constitutional violations either. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a tough one. It's really tough. Hey, can I ask you to hang on for a second, then we can talk about the CRTC ruling uh, regarding cell phones yesterday? Sure. Okay, let's do that. I'm going to put uh, Laura on hold. We'll come back and have that chat, because that's another interesting discussion. We'll do that right after this. So an announcement yesterday that Canada's three biggest wireless networks have suffered what... Some see it as a major setback for them. It's a ruling that uh, is meant to spur competition and bring down the consumer cost of mobile phones in this country, which is very, very high. Uh, the CRTC chairman, Ian Scott, says he believes that this ruling will ultimately result in lower wireless rates. Rates have been coming down, and they've been coming down pretty consistently, and you can see the statistics for that on uh, on our website in, in the monitoring report. But they're still too high. And they need to come down further. And this regulatory model is designed um, to make sure that happens. Uh, people who study this and pay attention to this uh, disagree. They say, yeah, this probably isn't going to work. One of the people who says that is our guest, Laura Tribe, who is uh, 
the executive director of the Internet Advocacy Group, Open Media. Um, Laura, first of all, let's just talk about the CRTC ruling itself. What does it say? What, what, um, what are the changes that they brought in? So what the CRTC decided in its ruling yesterday was that uh, smaller regional wireless cell phone providers, uh, so that would be like Videotron in Quebec or ExploreNet uh, in northern Manitoba, are able to come to an agreement with the main cell phone providers, Bell, Telus, and Rogers, to sell service over their networks um, as a mobile virtual network operator or an MVNO, to sell service over those networks in areas where the smaller providers might own spectrum or access to the airwaves but haven't built towers yet. And so, in theory, it sounds like, you know, wow, these these smaller companies are now going to be able to reach far more people and sell to more customers. Uh, But I think what is maybe missing from some of the discussion in yesterday's announcement is just how limited that expansion is going to be and how little of that will actually be passed on to or felt by Canadian customers. So when the CRTC says this is going to work, this is going to achieve our goal of bringing down prices, you're saying, yeah, probably not? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do we need to do? I mean, this has been an ongoing battle, and uh, we we just, our prices are ridiculous. If you take a look at what we pay versus what the rest of the world pays, it's not a pretty picture. No, I mean, looking at international reports, Canada comes in dead last. Yeah. We pay the most in the world for our cell phone service. And in this proceeding with the CRTC, what we at Open Media and many others were advocating for was to open up what we would call full MVNOs. So basically saying, instead of having to be a smaller cell phone provider with a network, you should let anyone resell over Bell, Telus, and Rogers Networks. Let anyone provide access, because that's how you see different types of plans, yeah. uh, different types of services, different customer service, you know, access without stores where you can do everything online. All of those things that, you know, we wish that our main providers would do, but no one's pressuring them to innovate. And I think, unfortunately, the strategy that the CRTC took, while I understand, you know, what they're saying or where they're coming from, I, I would strongly disagree with the outcome because it is banking on the idea that the smallest companies in Canada for cell phone service are somehow going to magically be able to compete with Bell, Telus, and Rogers, who are exponentially bigger than them. And this is like the tiniest leg up on a way up a mountain. And it is not going to be enough to change things. And in terms of customers, really doesn't change who's able to provide you service where. You know, I, was, I live in Ottawa, and I was looking at, you know, what would this change for me? Who's going to be able to come here? And the answer is no one. No one knew was going to be able to provide me service. Nothing is going to change. And so, therefore, my cell phone prices won't either. So why are they calling this a setback for the big three if really it's not going to change the landscape at all? I mean, is that just trying to sell this as, hey, we're doing something? Uh, I, I think it is. I think it is definitely trying to make it look like it is more than it is um, and really trying to make people believe that this might have the potential for change. I think if you are Bell, Telus, or Rogers currently you know, they might feel like it's a setback because it's something they have to do. And they have very stridently opposed anything that would require them to resell over their networks to anyone else. And so from their perspective, letting their regional competitors have even the slightest little foothold Mm -hmm. in the market is a damage. But I think when you look at it from the big picture of how far we are from where we need to be, it's just not going to make that impact that the CRTC might be hoping for. And is, is a lot of it just have to do with the fact that we're, we're so damn big and it's really hard to reach? I mean, you've got a, a few major urban centers, but outside of that, there's really no benefit to these companies putting in service? Well, I mean, it's, it's not just that we're so damn big as a country, but that the companies 
are so damn big. Right. When you look at Bell, Telus, and Rogers, they have over 80% of market share in the entire country. Yeah. So all of those smaller providers that we're talking about that can now access a slightly larger footprint make up less than 20% of the market. And of that, almost 10% is Shaw, or Freedom Mobile, who's about to be sold to Rogers. And so, you know, it's really a David and Goliath story here where you're like, well, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm sure they'll be able to figure it out. And the entire strategy that has gotten us here has been this idea of what the government calls facilities-based competition. Essentially, if you want to compete, if you want to exist in this market, you have to build your own network. Well, we are a really big country, and these companies have had decades of Head Start and decades of government subsidy and support to get to where they are. But suddenly we just think that some other smaller company can come in and replicate it against larger forces. It, it kind of feels like beating your head against a wall trying to figure out how to make the math work. Yeah, it's it's, and they haven't. They have not figured it out, clearly. They haven't, and I think, you know, <laughs> we saw this strategy before, and it's what got us wind mobile in the first place, right. who they couldn't make it on their own and had to be sold to Shaw, and now even at Shaw, they can't make it, and they're being sold to Rogers. And so trying to start over again with smaller regional providers seems like just kind of doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome sometimes. Uh, unfortunate. I was hoping for some good news there. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for your insight this morning. Good stuff. Thanks. I wish I had more uplifting news for you, but I hope you have a great weekend. <laughs> Only so much we can do. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> uh, that is Laura Tribe, who is the executive director of the Internet Advocacy Group, Open Media. So, uh, yeah, if you were hoping that this CRTC had solved this problem and was going to come up with lower sell prices for us, uh, you're hearing from the people who take a look at this and say, yeah, probably not. It's not going to work. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.